Hi, I'm Andy English, and this is Headley Boys, a small town's big part in the Great War. I acknowledge that the town of Headley is in the traditional territory of the Samilkameen people. This is Headley Boys, a small town's big part in the Great War. Episode 1, A Small Town in the Samilkameen. In a small British Columbia town, at the top of the main street, there stands a column of West Coast granite. It has stood in the very same spot for over 100 years. On the pillar is a lead-embossed crest that reads 54th Kootenai Overseas Battalion. The sides of the column have the names, ranks and units of 13 men. And on the front is the simple inscription, In loving memory of the Headley boys who fell in the war, 1914-18. Originally called the War Monument to the Fallen, it is now simply the Cenotaph, and was unveiled on this very spot in December 1919, making it one of the first of its kind in Canada. Like all such memorials the world over, it records in stone the names of men whose lives were ended by the 20th century wars. But these are a monument for the living, the survivors who came home, and the family and friends left to grieve. As the years have passed, so have memories of the men commemorated in stone, until now they are names read out on November 11th as we remember the dead of too many conflicts. But once, the sound of these names would have brought a smile or a tear to the eyes of people in attendance as they remembered the man they had known. So who were these men, the men forever remembered as the Headley boys? They were the men who lived in and around Headley and who left the safety and security of their little town in the mountains and enlisted for service in the Canadian Expeditionary Force in the First World War. A total of 58 men and boys signed attestation or enrolment papers to enter the army, although three were discharged soon after. Their ages ranged from 17 to 56 upon enlistment and most were above the average height of 5 foot 7. The jobs they did prior to signing up reflect a small mining town. There were the miners and stamp mill workers, and ranchers and forestry men. Also, the townsfolk, such as storekeepers and bankers, entered the ranks of the CEF. Those who served overseas faced the very real prospect of death or being wounded. Every man spent time in hospital for anything from mortal wounds to mumps, and three of the men would be commissioned from the ranks. Between them, they were awarded two military crosses and four military medals for gallantry in the field. Some of the men served together in the same units, while others fought with men from other provinces. But the one thing they all seemed to have was their sense of pride and identity in coming from Headley. It was something they wrote about frequently, their recollections of good times and their friends and family still in Headley. No doubt their fond memories came about when they were in the hell that were the trenches, but it was something for them to hang on to, in times when there seemed no hope, the dream of surviving and going home. Home to Headley. Their home... The little town of Headley is in the southern interior of British Columbia. It lies in the heart of the Samilkameen Valley, which runs west to east near the American border. To the west is the mining town of Princeton, and to the east the ranching and farming communities of Karameas and Corston. Due to its west to east direction, the valley was a part of the Judney Trail, one of the early cross-country roads. Fur trappers and prospectors had travelled through the valley and had noticed the unusual striped rock formations. In the late 1890s, further exploration revealed what was then the largest hard rock gold deposit on the North American continent. There was no gold rush though. A New York-based conglomerate, including a Rockefeller and Marcus Daly, the copper baron, 
soon held enough claims to start an extensive mining operation. The mine site developed into a community known as the Nickel Plate Town Site, named after the mountain they were now honeycombing in search of gold. 4,000 feet below, by 20 Mile Creek, another town site developed. It was there that the tram line would bring down the gold ore to a stamp mill that would crush and pulverise the rock. The town that quickly grew around these workings was named Headley Camp, after a Robert Headley who had grub-staked some of the early prospectors. Ideally situated between 20 Mile Creek and the Samilcomine, by 1914 Headley had grown into a bustling small mining town, with all the modern amenities. Although the town was never quiet, with the noise of the stamps in the mill going on 24-7, it was still a good place to live. About 400 men, women and children lived in both the town and Nickel Plate town site, or up top as it was commonly referred to. The town was the first in the valley to get electric lighting, courtesy of the power dam on the Samilcomine River. Raised sidewalks ran along the main thoroughfares, particularly useful during the spring thaw. And even though Headley was in the middle of the Samilcomine, thanks to the Vancouver, Victoria and Eastern Railway, you could board a train in Headley and travel to anywhere in North America. Both locals and visitors could play golf on what was considered one of the finest nine-hole courses this side of the Rockies. It was redesigned in 1905 by Austin Hoy, a travelling mining equipment salesman. He sketched out an 18-hole course, but in the end only nine were built, but its reputation certainly attracted visitors. And for the visitors there were six hotels in the town to stay in, although a lot of the rooms were taken by the mining stamp mill workers. Headley had two general goods stores, as well as a butcher, tobacconist, watch repair and post office. For entertainment, there were several halls used for dances or performances. Silent movies were screened. And there was roller skating twice a week at the Opera House. 25 cents a mission with skates supplied. Fundraising had led to the construction of a hospital at the top of Webster Street, forever known as Hospital Hill. There were churches, a bank and a newspaper, the Headley Gazette and organisations like the Masons, Loyal Orange Lodge, Woodman of America, and of course the Miners' Union. All told, Headley certainly offered a lot to the men who had travelled from all parts to find this little piece of the Samilcomine. With the amenities, steady employment and a beautiful location, Headley in 1914 was a destination, not somewhere you would leave and certainly not to go to live in a hole in the ground on the other side of the world. But that is what these men did. And as well as Headley, they left behind the people. While these men were mostly single, they still had many friends and family in town with who they kept in touch through letters. The Headley Gazette, the local newspaper, had started in 1905 under the editorship of A. McGraw. Throughout the war until its closure in August 1917, the Gazette regularly published letters from the men at the front that had been received by the townsfolk. Some of these letters were full of stories of what the Headley men were up to, where they were, and who had been transferred to other units. Others were as descriptive of battle as could get past the censors of the time, but nearly all make a reference to Headley, or a friend from the town. It was clear that to these men, Headley was always in their thoughts. Their place of peace and happiness to escape to had been the horrors they would be going through. The letters could take up to six weeks to reach the men at the front although the telegrams containing bad news made it quickly the other way. The recipients of the letters in Headley were often Goma Jones, the mine manager, or C.P. Dalton, the bank manager. Also, the ladies of the Headley Sewing Circle received letters from the troops. Another was Margaret Robertson. 
She had moved to Headley with her family, husband William, son Bobby, and daughters Helen and Phoebe, around 1912. Her brother William Henderson had been working at the mine for several years. They quickly became popular in town, and her daughter Phoebe was one of the first brides at the Nickel Plate camp. One of the first families in Headley were the Schuberts. The Schubert family were considered local legends. In 1862, the Overlander expedition was the first to cross the Rockies east to west. Of the 150 people, only one family, the Schuberts, were included. Of their four children, three boys made the crossing with them, and fourth, a daughter, was born soon after arriving in BC. Their eldest son, James, eventually opened the very first store in Headley, and by 1905 he had a store by the bridge on Haines Street. There, his second wife and his son from his first marriage, Bert, joined him. His parents would sometimes come to Headley and the townsfolk would crowd round to hear the tales of their pioneer days. Headley, then as now, had its fair share of characters. Nick Pickard, an old-timer originally from Oregon, had helped stake the original nickel plate claims with George Cahill. He now had land just southwest of the town. He had a creek run through his property and planted a small orchard and used to bring his produce to the Gazette office for the editor to sample. As well as fruit, though, his land was also a rattlesnake den, and he used to like to bring them into town as well, causing much consternation in the local hotels when he would release them in the bar. Martin Joseph Mayer, originally from Yorkshire, England, was always known as Yorkie, and had been round Headley for some years. He had been the contractor who had put in the wooden water line, some of which was still allegedly in use until modern times. He was often in trouble for liquor offences and minor misdemeanours, he too liked to release wildlife in public buildings, in his case, an eagle in the butcher's shop. Headley could certainly get lively, especially the weekends, when the men up top at the Nickel Blake mine would ride the tram line down to the town for Saturday night shindigs. They worked hard and liked to play hard. Every September was the Labour Day sports day, always well attended, with many coming from all over the valley to watch the baseball, running and shooting contests and the horse racing but one of the most popular events was rock drilling. This was done in pairs competing against each other. One man held the hand drill and turned it, the other hit it with a big sledgehammer. Huge crowds would watch and the results were published in the Gazette. This event was popular with the miners and very competitive, with $50 and the bragging rights to the winner. William Liddycote was always in the top three. He was a big strong miner from Cornwall in the southwest of England. Cornwall was famous for its tin mines, and with their closures, many Cornishmen had emigrated to North America. It was once said, If you holler down a mine shaft, a Cornish voice will answer you. Not all mines welcomed Cousin Jacks as they were known. They could be quite militant and vocal for union rights, and as such could be viewed as troublemakers. The nickel plate mine, though, employed a number of Cornishmen, such as William Lidico, William Tucker and William Riscoll. Another Charles Christiana worked at the stamp mill. And interestingly, the first church in Headley was a chapel, and a number of these men were non-conformist in religion. The Miners' Union and Loyal Orange Lodge in Headley were also run at different times by Cornishmen. The Miners' Union helped to organise the funerals of men killed in accidents, and covered some of their pay if they were injured and ended up in the hospital. Crushed hands and fingers were quite common. Jack Howe, who was now the Opera House manager, had lost several fingers in such an accident. He now sang instead with Headley's own popular vocal quartet, who performed at the dances and functions. E. Pryor, Thomas Knowles and Alec Jack joined Jack Howe on stage to sing the popular songs of the day. But as well as patching up injured miners, in 1913 
the Headley Hospital performed quite a delicate operation for a small hospital, brain surgery. Headley Gazette, April 10th, 1913. A delicate operation. Dr. McEwen removes piece of skull bone penetrating the brain of patient. A very delicate operation was performed here on Saturday morning in the Headley Hospital when Dr. McEwen operated on Tommy Corrigan and removed a piece of the skull bone which was pressing down into the brain. In last issue, we referred to a seizure which the patient had when he fell unconscious as the result of a little undue excitement at a party. Last week again, he was on the roof down at Roll's store helping to make repairs when another attack came on him. And, but for the fact that B. Rolls noticed him and caught him in time, he would have fallen off the roof. The injury which produced these attacks occurred 12 years ago, when he was 6 years old, and was caused by a fall which he had when he was running after a dog that he and Morris Daly had harnessed. He could not let go of the line, and when he fell, he hit his head against the stone. He was not senseless at the time, but after he regained conscious, little more was thought of it, and no inconvenience was felt from it until the seizure of a little more than two weeks ago. When Dr. McEwen was advised of this attack, and a narrow escape from falling off the roof, he decided to operate and find out the exact state of affairs, and sent to Princeton for Dr. McCaffrey to be present and assist. In cutting through the skull bone, he found that it had thickened very much to the point of injury and could see that quite a large section which had been forced in by the blow and was adhering to another section of the skull than that which he had removed by the incision was penetrating down into the brain. He concluded that it would be best to get it away without further delay. To do so, it was necessary to press down in between the brain and the jagged point of this piece of invading bone, so as to protect the brain from injury from the bone while detaching the latter from the section of skull to which it was adhering. Its removal was accomplished successfully without any apparent injury to the brain, and the patient has been doing well ever since. The incision in the skull has been kept open, which is considered the safer plan and less apt to give rise to unfavourable after-effects. The patient was kept as quiet as possible for a few days following the operation, although it was somewhat difficult to do so as he was feeling strong and fit and could not see any necessity for the restraint. The operation was an exceedingly delicate one and was cleverly and carefully done. The doctor's wide experience as house surgeon in the Vancouver General Hospital for so many years evidently stood him in good service in this case as well, although the limited facilities of a small hospital like that in Headley must have been felt by him and added to the strain until the job was successfully accomplished. Tommy was the youngest of five brothers who had moved to Headley from Hope to work in the mine and the mill. First, the eldest John had moved here. Then gradually his four other brothers found their way to Headley, leaving their father alone in hope until he too moved to Headley. And they were not the only siblings in town. It seems that a number of the men once settled in Headley, enjoyed the pay and the conditions, the potential of the area and the beauty of the valley, and they were joined by other family members. There were the Rotherham brothers. Tommy was the town photographer and Edward or Joe ran the tobacconist store. Or the Dollamores, Frank was the proprietor of the Milkmean Hotel, and he was joined by his 13-year-old brother Daniel, who travelled all alone from England to Seattle, where Frank picked him up. Both William Tucker and Thomas Knowles had brothers who joined them in the mine and mill, and as well as that, Thomas Knowles' mother moved here as well. So Headley had now become a place that people would travel halfway round the world to come work and live. Life had never seemed so good to the people of Headley that summer of 1914. The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo at the end of June barely caused a ripple in Headley. Some of the old-timers in the valley might have recalled his hunting and fishing trip to the Okanagan in 1893. 
but no one could have foreseen the consequences of his murder. The outbreak of the war, while headline news, it didn't dominate the Gazette for the first few weeks. Everything carried on as normal. The Labour sports day still went ahead and drew large crowds, and the rock drilling contest brought competitors from all over. But there was no William Lidicote, because he, along with three other men, George Boxall, Fred Beck and William Henderson, had left Headley for Nelson. There they were going to begin the first step of joining the Canadian Expeditionary Force. At Nelson, William Henderson failed the medical exam due to a previous injury he'd sustained at the Nickel Plate Mine, while both Fred Beck and George Boxall eventually made the decision to carry on across Canada and go all the way back to England, and in George Boxall's case, re-enlist in his old regiment. William Lidicote too went across Canada, but he got off in Quebec and reported to Valcartier camp. It was here that Canada was starting to assemble the army it had promised to send to England. Prior to the outbreak of the First World War, Canada's only experience of fighting in an overseas war had been in South Africa at the beginning of the century. Then, a small force of just over 500 men and horses that had been funded privately by Lord Strathcona and led by Colonel Sam Still served in the South African War for a year. The effort now needed for the war in Europe was going to surpass anything Canada had managed before. The man in charge of creating this brand new army was Sam Hughes. He had chosen to ignore the existing mobilisation plan, which revolved around mobilising the militia and enlarging on them. Instead, he set up a brand new training camp at Valcartier in Quebec and went about creating a brand new Canadian expeditionary force. It would consist of an infantry division, cavalry brigade, artillery and support units. At first, it was chaos creating a new camp out of nothing, but by the end of September, order had been established. So when William Lidico, after his cross-Canada journey, arrived, he was soon accepted into the Canadian Expeditionary Force. He didn't have any time to settle into his new surroundings. Already the big transport ships were being loaded, but it was chaotic and confusion reigned. Ships were being loaded then unloaded when equipment belonging to different units got mixed up. It took nearly a week before the 31 transports were loaded, and even then much got left behind. The giant flotilla of ships in three long columns made an impressive sight as it left Quebec. There it was met by a large force of British warships, and on October 3rd, what was then the largest military force to ever cross the Atlantic, set sail for England. The first of the Headley boys was off to war. Headley Boys was written, produced and presented by Andy English. Maple Leaf Forever was performed by Cindy Rieger in the Grace Church, Headley. <laughs>